This is Chapter 160 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we swap ghost stories with young adult author Taylor K. Mejia. Then we go back to the glitz and glamour of the jazz age with debut novelist Liza Nash-Taylor. Every culture has its ghosts, creatures, and superstitions. Growing up in my house, us kids were terrified by tales about Krampus. For author Taylor K. Mejia, it was stories about La Llorena that kept her up at night. She taps into the scariest story of her childhood, her words, for her new young adult book, Paola Santiago and the River of Tears. Before we get to that interview, though, I just want to point out that The Middle Grade Adventure is published under the Rick Royden Presents imprint, whose goal is to publish stories inspired by the mythology and folklore of underrepresented cultures and backgrounds. I love that the jumping off point for this book is the big question, what if the ghost stories we were told as kids were true? Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, I think um, especially, you know, in Mexican-American culture, we grow up hearing a lot of of really spooky stories at a super young age. And I think, you know, like like the book's protagonist, I uh, tried to explain those stories away to be a little bit less terrified. But as I was kind of re-examining all those stories from my childhood, I was like, man, these were really scary for an eight-year-old. <laughs> we, had, we had a time. But yeah, like what would be even scarier is if you had to like see one of them walking around, horrifying stuff. Tell us a little bit too about uh, Paola and what she gets herself into in this book. Yeah, well, at the beginning of the book, Pao is like a very uh, anti-superstitious girl. She's very focused on science. She thinks her mom's kind of superstitious beliefs are really outdated and silly. And um, I think for her, that's kind of like a defense mechanism. She's like, I'm not scared. That doesn't even exist. Um, But then her best friend goes missing and under pretty, you know, mysterious circumstances. And she kind of has to confront the fact that maybe all her logic and science and you know the the hypotheses she's drawing about it can't really explain what's fully going on and she has to delve into some things that are a little bit more supernatural to find the cause and maybe her best friend going missing is the one thing that would convince her to do that (laughs) and you mentioned you grew up hearing these kinds of stories at what point did you did you realize hey this might make a really good book for young readers if i were to try to weave some of those stories into it i didn't even think of it until i heard of the rick riordan presents imprint and how he was you know focusing on finding authors to tell stories about their own cultures and mythology and I was thinking about it and I'm like really what kind of like mythological stuff did I grow up with and I'm thinking like you know gods and heroes and all that stuff like he explores in his books and then I was like really mine were scary like I had the ghost stories but we were also obsessed with them as kids I was like maybe we could really do this so yeah I did dig back into some of those old scary stories but definitely I was inspired by the by the premise of his imprint to kind of dig back into all that is the point of the imprint and this story itself to really have kids who never grew up hearing about chupacabras or la llorena and, you know, lead them to want to know more about uh, Mexican culture and Latinx culture? I think that's an awesome side effect. But the point for me really is like to write books that Mexican and Mexican-American kids can see themselves in, because I think we grow up, you know, so often kind of having to put our identities to the side in order to enjoy books for young readers, because there just aren't a lot of them, especially fun, adventure fantasy ones um, that have kids like us in them. So I think my main point to 
let's write a story that a kid like me when I was a kid or, you know, a kid like my daughter or other kids that I've taught and known to, to really be able to see themselves and their families and their traditions reflected in a book. And then if along the way people get more interested in our culture and want to explore more, all the better. <laughs> now, is that why, too, then that, you know, you really definitely weave in some pretty serious topics like racial discrimination, um, uh, wealth inequality, people's immigration status and the fear of ice coming and knocking on your door. Do you think all young readers will understand that the real world can sometimes be scarier than the mythological one? I think certainly a lot of kids that grow up in my culture do know those things from such a young age and they're kind of woven in, you know, the same age that we're hearing about really scary fictional stuff. We're also experiencing really scary stuff in the real world. So part of it was making sure not to diminish, you know, the the bravery of the kids who are facing all that stuff. And part of it was definitely to show, you know, people who might not be so familiar with the young age at which that stuff starts to come up that like, yeah, this is reality for a lot of kids. Now, Paola herself is a is a science space geek, and she finds out pretty fast and in quite an alarming fashion that uh, there's something science can't explain. Now, do you personally think both worlds can coexist? I do, yeah. And that's that's kind of, you know, without giving too much away, kind of what I wanted to show in the book is like, whether it's science or, you know, anything else, I think a lot of us, especially, you know, kids growing up in the U.S. that are sort of like removed from like like one generation removed from the country that their parents or their grandparents came from we kind of struggle with like how do we integrate all these like traditions and cultural things but also you know like make that work with what we're learning in school and what we're interested in here so i think it was important to show that like yeah i think you can definitely be informed by your culture's traditions while still having like a modern view on a lot of things so that's that's something pal's learning (laughs) in maybe a more dramatic fashion than some of us do And in more ways than most seventh graders have to go through. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Why did you want to write for young readers? Um, I think I've always been fascinated with the coming of age story, just like, you know, the part of your life where you realize that no matter how well-meaning they are, the people who are in charge of you and the people who love you can't give you all the tools you need to succeed. And you sort of have to like go out there and start figuring things out on your own. And I think those themes are relevant, you know, so far past childhood that like we're still all figuring out how to kind of like be ourselves and assert ourselves in the world all the time. So it's just like constantly relevant to me to write stories about like figuring out who you are and pushing back against the things that, you know, inform your upbringing that maybe don't fit anymore. So I'm, I'm definitely fascinated by that process of like growing up and becoming yourself. And also the fact that your parents have the ability to embarrass you and then you might turn around and realize, wait a minute, what they were saying were actually true, even though you might not want to admit it, right? Oh, man, so many moments in this book where Kyle looks back and is like, dang it, my mother was right. <laughs> I don't we all hate that feeling. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and you like, as a no, mom now probably feel it right. even more. Yes, all the time, definitely. <laughs> my daughter is actually a lot of the inspiration for the space obsessed pal came from her because she's been, you know, fascinated by space and science since she was really little. And I'm actually a little bit more like the superstitious mom. So, yeah, there was some of our dynamic made its way in there for sure. You're the one lighting candles? Yes, definitely. <laughs> She doesn't mind the candles as much as Pow does, though. <laughs> we'll see, though. She's only seven. She could grow to be horrified by it. I don't know. 
<laughs> well, let's hope not. Yeah, exactly. Are you planning more supernatural adventures for Pal? Yeah, I have uh, the sequel is called Paolo Santiago and the Forest of Nightmares, and that one's out next summer. I actually just finished it, <laughs> and then hopefully beyond. We'll see. We'll see how it all goes. But I could, I could definitely keep going. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of interesting ghosts. I was gonna say there, there there's got to be a, a whole like pantheon of of stories that you can tap. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's tons, tons of even more terrifying than this one. So <laughs> we'll see. Now, do you yourself believe in them? I do. You know, I I think maybe maybe not as literally as the as the ghost stories on the page or the ones we're told. I think there's a lot to be said for how those stories form, and a lot of this book is kind of digging into like why. Why this ghost? Why why demonize like a, a woman and a mother and kind of like some of the feminist issues that that brings up? But I definitely believe in in you know afterlife and spirits and ancestors and stuff like that. Just uh, it's a constant <laughs> it's a constant thing figuring out how it fits into the real world. But yeah, I definitely do. Was there one in particular from your childhood of all these stories that really scared you the most? Oh, this one definitely. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Know, was the was the most terrifying one. Yeah, absolutely. So you got her out of the way, and now you can focus on all the other the the minor ghosts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can I can you know approach the rest of them a little more academically. This one was the scariest for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been talking with Taylor K. Mejia. The new book is Paola Santiago and the River of Tears. It's really a lot of fun, and I don't think you need to be a young reader to enjoy it. But that's just my personal opinion. Thank you. I certainly hope so. What do bootleggers, Josephine Baker, and a porcelain doll have to do with each other? Well, they feature in this week's summer read pick, Etiquette for Runaways, the debut novel from Liza Nash Taylor. Her coming-of-age story is set in the jazz era and follows a young woman on a quest to follow her dreams and uncover her past. She told us all about it. First of all, thank you for having me. The story is set in 1924 and 25, and it starts in Virginia, and it moves on to New York, and then on to Jazz Age Paris. And it's the story of a young woman's regret, ambition, and quest for redemption um, that will take her on this journey, ending up in Jazz Age Paris, in search for answers to the question, how do we ask forgiveness when we've intentionally deceived the people who love us the most? And how do we forgive ourselves? I'm going to come back to the story, but I want to ask you about something that I read, that the story was inspired by a piece of porcelain? Yes, that's right. Um, The Virginia part of the novel is set at the house where I live in Albemarle County, Virginia. It was built about 1830. And when I'm digging in my garden or, you know, walking around, we find things in the dirt that people threw away a hundred or more years ago, like antique bottles and horseshoes and and, uh, pieces of pottery and porcelain. And I came across this uh, broken piece of a Victorian era doll's face. And it was a little creepy, but it made me stop and wonder, um, whose doll had this been? And um, what happened to it? How did it get broken? Did a pesky older brother throw it down the stairs? Or did the little girl just outgrow dolls? But I knew then that I wanted to 
tell the story of the little girl who had loved that doll. I, for one, am glad that you went the historical fiction route as opposed to the horror route. (laughs) (laughs) I have never tried horror, but I think it would be a lot of fun, actually. Maybe your next book, then. Maybe. And there are also a couple of uh, real-life events from this particular era that inspired you as well, right? That's right. In my research, I came across a trial that actually happened in 1935, but I took the storyline and moved it to 1924 to suit my timeline. Um, What happened was, as I said, I live in Albemarle County, Virginia, and nearby Franklin County, which is about two hours from here, um, during Prohibition, it was known as the moonshine capital of the world. And um, a conspiracy ring developed. There was much competition and violence. Um, So a ring of corrupt sheriffs and officials uh, defrauded the government out of $5.5 million in whiskey excise taxes, which is equivalent to roughly $95 million today. And what they were doing was taking bribes from small operators, uh, calling it protection money, when in fact the governor of Virginia had decreed that they should leave the small operators alone and go after the big fish because the court dockets and the jails were already full of of small-time operators. So it was the second largest trial, I think, in Virginia's history, and it resulted in 20 convictions, but there were a lot of intimidated witnesses. So as I said, I don't go into the trial But the storyline of the crooked officials definitely made it into my plot. And Josephine Baker did as well. She did, yes. It turned out that the entire Paris part of the story came about um, because of Josephine Baker. And uh, I've always been fascinated by Josephine Baker. She was such a remarkable person. And in 1925, she was recruited to go to Paris with a troupe of African-American musicians and dancers to, um, to appear in a review called La Revue Negre at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées. Um, the owner of the theater had commissioned an American socialite to get this group together and bring them over, and it was done quickly. And they practiced on the steamship on the way over, and they got to Paris, And the owner of the theater saw them rehearse once, and he immediately fired the choreographer, and he changed the costumes, and he made Josephine Baker the star. So that part of her life and that story, um, I was originally going to use Miss Baker as a character, but then I would have been confined by the details of her her real life. So I, I created a character that I called Janie, who was inspired by Josephine Baker's story. You can't let the facts get in the way of good fiction, right? <laughs> well, they can be a big help. But, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I knew readers would have expectations if I actually made her a character. Now, let's go back to your main character of May. And she, to me, comes off as someone with some pretty modern sensibilities considering the time and the place where she grew up. Why did you write her in this way? Well, you know, Lisa, that's always a challenge in in writing historical fiction is to not uh, t- to try to uh, be true to the sensibilities of the time, yet also you know create a, a character who 
is sympathetic. Um, I was inspired as, as far as uh, May's, re, May's interaction with her African-American friends. When I was doing the research on Josephine Baker and I found out, you know, I read about some of her experiences. Like, for instance, when I was telling you that they were going to Paris on the steamship Berengaria, Josephine Baker was invited to perform in the first-class lounge with the orchestra, but she was made to take the freight elevator to get there. And when I read things like that, I, I, I couldn't gloss over them, neither do I want to sensationalize them. So I have May observing her friends going through these things, and, and I felt like I could give her observation of their experiences a modern a little bit of a modern lens, you know? I understand that. And I think also, I think sometimes we maybe get caught in the trap of, well, everyone was like this back in this time, but that's not necessarily true. There were definitely people who didn't conform to the way they thought women should act, the way they thought relations between white and black should be. And there were people who kind of pushed back against that, although we don't hear too much about them. You're right. You're right. In the 20s, you know, we think of the 20s and people dancing the Charleston and wearing fringed dresses, but there was a real dark side to it as well. Um, but it was a, a, a revolutionary time for American women. Um, you know, Tuesday, the day my book came out, the 18th of August, was the 100-year anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So a huge day for, you know, American women. So May also gets into a little bit of trouble as she chases her dreams from Virginia to New York to Paris. Is she meant to be a cautionary tale or an encouraging one? That is a great question. Um, May's character, in part, was inspired by a novel I had read right before I started writing, and that would be Daniel Defoe's 1722 Mall Flanders who um, just things fell into her lap and she got ahead and she got even and she used her wits, but she broke the rules often. And I, I liked that about her. So um, I, I like to say this book ends in, in a way that is hopefully ambiguous. I don't tie things up at the end uh, and in a bow. Um, and, you know, I have a sequel coming out next year. So people can find out what happened. Tell me about the title. What inspired Etiquette for Runaways? Well, in, you know, in doing my research, I love to buy novels and periodicals that are contemporaneous to the time I'm writing about. So I'll go on eBay and buy magazines and so forth. It's a great way to find speech patterns and slang and everyday details of life that, that you just can't find elsewhere. So one of the books I bought was Emily Post's first guide to etiquette that came out in 1922. And in my imagination, um, May would have gotten a copy of this for her high school graduation. And as she goes through, uh, as she tries to make her way in college, she believes that by studying this etiquette guide and by copying dresses from Vogue magazine, she's got it all made. And, you know, it ends up not working out so well. But that's where the title came from. And the cover itself, I have to admit, it first threw me off because I thought it would be a much more modern story because the, the woman pictured on the cover comes across as being a very, like, 
today type of person. Yeah, I love my cover. Um, the photograph, it's, it's a black and white photo of a woman's profile. It's from 1930. And her name was Renee Pearl, and she was the lover and muse of the French photographer Jacques-Henri Lartigue, who was very innovative um, starting in the 1920s, and he developed his own color film. Um, But he met Renee Pearl on the streets of Paris when she was a fashion model, and they were together for two years. And after she died in the 80s, her family discovered and auctioned off a trove of 300 unknown photos of her taken by Lartigue, and this is one of them. And I just love the the moodiness of it. She's beautiful and she's exotic, but you kind of want to know what she's thinking. And also timeless, I think. Yes. Well, I love getting that, that backstory. So now everyone else has the backstory as well. They're going to have to go search out the book and its cover with, I love the, the metallic Art Deco detail on it as well. I'm a sucker. Thank you. That. I do too. And I love my <laughs> Art Deco end papers. The um, yes. Alenka Lenashki designed the cover and uh, for Blackstone Publishing, and she did a beautiful job. So you mentioned you're working on the sequel. Uh, when might we see that? Right. That comes out August 10th of 2021. And it is a standalone sequel. So. Um, some of the same characters will come back, but it's it's a dual narrative. There'll be some new characters as well. And it is set around the events of the 1932 Veterans Bonus March on Washington, D.C. that happened during the Great Depression. And I don't want to give too much away, but I am going to ask, might we see... You, you mentioned you didn't wrap up this story with a bow. Might we see some sort of peek into how things went. You know, that's funny, Lisa, because I had finished the second manuscript. And when my editor, who also edited the first one, read it, she goes, listen, Liza, your readers need, you know, they, they, they're going to want to know what happened in these six intervening years. And you're going to have to go back and write a prologue or something. <laughs> so I've got to work on that. Or even just, even just a hint of, uh, of, of what happened to May. Yes, all will be revealed. <laughs> okay. I look forward to that then. We've been talking with Liza Nash-Taylor. Her new book is Etiquette for Runaways. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Lisa. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. A couple of programming notes, if I may. I know I promised an interview with Sandra Brown, but because of unforeseen circumstances, we had to delay the interview. Also, After months of cranking out news and podcasts, we're finally taking some much-needed time off, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks with lots of great author interviews and books for that fall reading list. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. You never know what we'll share. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.